0: Hello Trojan fans, welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Wednesday. We skipped the Tuesday podcast, so it's kind of our Tuesday podcast, but it's on a Wednesday. We're going to chat with, of course, Dan Weber, USCfootball.com beat writer and columnist about USC Fall Camp. We've had four practices in the books. There's a fifth one today on Tuesday in full pad, so we're going to get to all those details. And we have a ton of questions for Dan you guys sent over the last week, so we're going to try to get to each and every one of them. But if you have more questions, you can send them into us, podcast at USCfootball.com or leave us a voicemail, a couple of different ways. PeristylePodcast.com. Click on the left side of the page, leave a voicemail from your device, or call this number, 641 715 3900 extension 816-646. Leave us a brief voicemail there. We'll play it on the air. We got a couple of them today on the show. And of course, love to have you subscribe to us on iTunes. Go to iTunes.com slash Podcast. They give us our own domain name on iTunes. So go in there, subscribe to our channel. Please leave us positive feedback. That would be wonderful. And uh, yeah, to just make the podcast even better. And uh, without further ado, let's bring in Dan Weber. What's up, Dan? How you doing?
1: Oh, great. Great. And uh, no negative feedback. We just don't want (laughs) that. I'm just
0: just kidding. Any feedback's okay.
1: No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, that's always the fun part.
0: Yeah. Good book. Was it any, any publicity is good publicity. So yeah, it helps us like people's uh, on iTunes. If you, you know, the more people that comment, I think it just moves us up the search engines and stuff like that. So definitely I'd love for you guys to go and check it out. And uh, I don't know, Dan, if you're a consumer of podcasts, but I've started doing it more recently and I just have, you know, you put the app on your phone and if you use it, you know, anything that'll, that'll uh, go into iTunes, you can grab podcasts from uh subscribe to different college football ones and I listen to Adam Corolla too. He's pretty funny. That's he's I think he's got the most popular podcast in the world. But I never I I've produced the podcast for years and years, Dan, but I never really consumed them before. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I I agree with you on Adam Carolla. I, I like uh uh Kelly Smith was on one the other day, I guess with uh, Sports Illustrated Richard Dykes who does their uh media column and he does a really good job and obviously our, our buds, uh that are Bruce Feldman and uh, Stuart Randell. Yeah. They uh they share one that's, uh, that's really good. So yeah, there are, there are one. I mean, you do, you maybe kind of run out of time in a day. Uh, there's so much media to consume. It's just, uh, it's amazing. So that's why we, uh, we like it. The number of people who are, uh, locked in to the, uh, uscfootball.com podcast, uh, that, uh, feel like one of the nice things I run into people who listen to the podcast and they really believe uh that they know you that they feel like you're talking right to them and in the car or wherever they're listening to it and it's a uh, a kind of a one-on-one personal you know uh relationship that you can develop with people it's really neat
0: it is it, you know the amount of people that come up to us and say and Harvey Hyde says the same thing. It's like, man, people come up to me all the time and talk about the podcast. And more so, more than the website, more than uscfootball.com, I mean, there's more people that just are on the podcast. I guess it's easier to consume it. And, uh, you know, people have been doing it for a long time. They're like, oh, I'm in the gym. I'm in the car. I love doing it in the car now, uh, just listening to podcasts in the car, just sports radio. For, I used to listen to it all the time, but just so many commercials. And uh, now podcasts, I can just listen to whatever I want to, and I, I really enjoy it. So. Um, And
1: and if you're in L.A., makers talk probably or angels talk probably kind of after a while, you say, you know, there must be something else in sports out there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, But I think the other thing, I think the personal nature of it is I think that's why people can come up and talk to you about it, because in effect, you're talking to them already. So that barrier is down and it's more like you're having a conversation with them. So. When they come up and talk to you, they're just continuing the conversation, which is really pretty neat.
0: Yeah. And, uh, okay, before we jump in, I just wanted to thank our sponsor, Michael Moline Real Estate. So if you're anywhere in SoCal and you need help with real estate, you can go to michaelmolinerealestate.com or call him at 310-275-4688. There'll be a, a, a little message at the end of the podcast kind of telling you more about him. But he's a big USC guy. We still have to get him or one of the stats people on the show because the the stats aspect is very interesting in the Coliseum he's part of that stats team so big USC guy if you need help in real estate go to michael Moline, uh real com. and Dan maybe uh, we have so many questions so I want to try to get to them all but uh, and if you go if you go to uscfootball.com you, get, you know our fall camp central page it has all of our content and we're just putting up tons of stuff I think seven eight items a day so there's lots of content going up but you know, First four practices, maybe give kind of a brief uh, you know, overview of what you saw out there, and then we'll jump into the questions.
1: Well, I think I saw a return to USC football where you saw high-intensity competition, and I do think that was the secret ingredient to the Pete Carroll uh, years was that uh, these guys believed that the guy they were playing against in practice was as good as anybody or better than anybody they were going to play, and they were playing at a higher level cuz they had to there wasn't any other way you could do it other than uh competing i thought that was Pete's secret ingredient in his own makeup was he was such an ultimate competitor and i think that you know came across to the players and i think you're seeing now with uh not a full roster but darn darn close to it and a roster with a whole lot of talent And I think one of the uh, great things Pete did in the early years was he immediately incorporated freshmen. I mean, that Michael Williams, uh, you know, Mike Williams thought was probably the biggest transformation that he came, you know, in, started playing with a big impact player right away. And, and you always had this sense that we're going to recruit such good freshmen that they're going to push everybody and they may push you out of the way and they may be out on the field. I think we're seeing that happen now. And, uh, uh, we're seeing, you know, a bunch of, uh, returning rehab guys and a bunch of really talented freshmen and a bunch of young sophomore, you know, sophomore guys that were really, really good. And and the the mix is giving you kind of an intensity, uh, that we didn't see last year that the coaches, you know, hadn't gone through a, a limited scholarship season. And I just don't think they knew where to put the brakes on in practice or in games. And uh, I don't think we're seeing a sense of, oh, we better ease up or we better hold up or whatever. You, you know, you may not say you want a Dory Jackson to have 900 plays, or you know, playing three ways, but you don't have to now because you've got other people. You've got much better rotation. So I think that that's probably of all the things you've seen is that much more intense level of competition uh, and a much higher caliber at all the rotations, you're not dropping way off. That's what uh, Cody Kessler was talking about that the other day. He said, you know, you go through the second and third rotations, and still you're not playing with or against guys who can't play. You know, they can all play, and uh, that's a big difference.
0: It is. I, I agree 100% on that one. It's just a different feel, a different look, and I guess that kind of leads into our first voicemail question. I'll play it for you, and we'll get your comments.
1: Yeah, hey, Ryan. This is uh, Eric in Georgia. Uh, My question is for you, Coach or Dan, really, and I I know it's early. Does this year feel different to you uh, than recent years? I mean, do we walk, do we run, talk, practice with the silent confidence um, of a program that sees everything coming together finally? And do you think Coach Sark finally understands that USC needs to play four quarters with their foot on the gas instead of slowing down and running out the clock. Um, Thank you very much. Love the podcast. Bye. on. Yeah, I think, Eric, those are the key questions. I think uh, what happens when you practice with the intensity that they're practicing at, um, you develop that confidence. That was the thing that set apart peace teams was, they knew. They didn't just believe that or hope that they were going to do the right thing at the end of games or when they needed to make a big play. They knew they were. It wasn't even a thought in their mind that they weren't going to do that. And this is what you have to develop. And, and you see it in the confidence you know, of a Cody, obviously, or a Trey man, uh, you know, two fifth-year guys. Uh, they just have, you know, kind of a, a confidence about them. Uh, you see it in uh, – you know, you watch, uh, they you know, on the sidelines while the other teams are in there, you see a Sue and a, uh, and a Dory. And they're, you know, they're coaching them up and, you know, calling out, you know, to both, you know, their, their teammates on defense or the other guys on offense. And there is a confidence level that we probably haven't seen before. And, and, and rightly so. I mean, there's probably not another athlete. There isn't another athlete for sure in the country like a Dory. I mean, he just, you know, he is what he is, and nobody else has got one. And Sua is probably real close to that. And, uh, you know, I just think they're in a place now where they can let guys like Adore and Sua be Adore and Sua. And just, you know, the way you could let a, you know, Troy Palomalu be, uh, you know, do what he does and what he did. And not that anybody else could necessarily do it. But uh, but I think, yeah, there, there's kind of a confidence building it comes from practicing the way they're practicing. And, uh, and I think this might be one of those cases where, you know, you convince the coach by what you do yourself on the practice field and maybe bring the coaches along with them. I think Coach Wilcox, you know, defense coordinator, is a different person this year. And he, he looks back at last year and what they didn't do and how they didn't close out games. He looks at the talent he's got. He looks at the fact that there's two or three guys behind every one of those guys, and he's able to say, "Okay, maybe we will blitz this year, and maybe we will send a Dory. You know, we'll send, you know, we're going to send a lot of different people from a lot of different places. And with the athletes they've got, the ability to do that changes their look completely."
0: All right. Uh, thanks for that one. Let's go to. Why don't we go to Tarek? um he had a question have you seen any weight gain from quinton powell so that sark can use him on defense rather than just special teams
1: a little bit uh i'm not sure he's ever going to be one of these guys that's going to be you know uh uh, 220 pounds i mean that might be the you know the ultimate outside goal i think if he gets to 215 everybody's going to be happy as heck uh you know, he is, uh, I mean, I think the, the thing you could do, though, when Quentin is out there, you can do things with him that maybe you couldn't do with somebody else. If you're just going to play that kind of, oh, you know, we're going to just stand here in our defense and we're not going to take any chances and we're just going to just, you know, hope they make a mistake or whatever, that's probably not not the way to use Quentin. But if you have him out there and you got him flying around and, making plays in space and all that, uh, and take advantage of all the things you can do, which is what I think this defense this year should be able to do, is to take advantage of the individual abilities that these different guys bring. I mean, you've got Porter Guson at 6'5 with a real motor, uh, you know, at that rush end, or, heck, if you drop him off in coverage, it's hard. To, you know, to the kid's a 6'5 basketball player. Uh, it's hard to throw over him or a, a John Houston who can just, why i mean he just he he's been a real revelation i think we all knew you know cameron smith could play coming in and then you see osa messina who gives you another big athletic guy you know who can uh you know stay in the passing lanes and do a do a lot of things that you know you haven't been able to do before so i think that encourages them to be able to say okay what can we do with these guys instead of you know how do we you know get off the field before they catch us uh which was unfortunately kind of the way they played last
0: year. Uh okay, Andrew wants to know who's the biggest head turner on the team. Hmm. tough question.
1: Yeah.
0: That's an interesting I mean I'd probably go with Dory. just he just makes some kind of crazy
1: Oh, you mean thing. Oh yeah, I, I was thinking of the new guys. Oh yeah, no, Adori. He he's not like, you know, any normal human beings. <laughs> I mean, you know, on the sidelines <laughs> last last night people were talking about. Well, I wonder if if on one of these uh, breakaway plays, does they say Adore gets some kind of a return or an interception and somebody's angling to try to, maybe it's Adore and one defender who's trying to angling and cut him off at, say, the inside the 10-yard line. And we're guessing is, say it's at the 7, does Adore launch himself and just see if he can make it into the end zone, uh, you know, from the 7 or 8-yard line? Might be able to. I mean, we probably haven't ever seen a play like that, you know, but you saw Reggie or Adore, you know, get to the goal line, do a, you know, the flip and, uh, but there is now talk about what if Adore just, you know, gets in the right situation and just decides I'm going to show you who the long jump champion in the Pac-12 is and just takes off like he's running, you know, like how far, you know, what kind of a head start would he need, what kind of, you know, run up and all that kind of thing, but, but that's the kind of stuff that people, when you watch Adore, you start thinking about. I mean, he's had, he's had as many touchdowns almost as anyone. He hasn't played offense yet. You know, I mean, he just, he figures out a way to do things that other people don't even think about. I mean, the, the ball strip on, on Dominic Davis the other day was just, how did he do that? You know, I mean, it's, uh, he swung him around and, Dominic I think thought he was going down and as he kind of got closer to the ground and he hit his back turned that's when the Dory took the ball away from him and that's the kind of thing you probably in the old days you would have seen it from a Troy Palamalu or maybe a Matt Rudegood or a Lofa Tatupu guys like that and those are the plays we haven't seen from those kinds of playmakers and, and that's what you want to see that that's back so uh so yeah, you can't go wrong with with Adore. Uh Sua would all, always be in that. And uh, in the discussion, although if the ball is up in the air, uh, Deontay Burnett, keep your eye on him. Yeah. I mean, he may just grab one in a place you think there is no possible way he couldn't even touch the ball, much less catch it, just with one hand. I mean, he's uh, he's got some spectacular. Uh, uh ball catching ability. And Dequan Hampton in a completely different way, uh, in traffic, you know, leaning down and all that. Some of the uh I would say we've had more spectacular catches already in the first four practices than I can remember the entire last year, not just fall. I mean that's th- just one after another. I mean you can't even begin to guess, you know, on a day, you can't even rate what's the what's the catch of the day. They're just <laughs>
0: There are a lot of catches being made out there. There definitely are. Um, okay, Stephen Poway. Sorry, we just have so many of these. It's crazy. But uh, we love it. We love to hear your questions. Uh, reading about the uh, academic eligibility situation with Jalen Cope Fitzpatrick. He's the tight end for USC. We haven't seen him out of practice yet. Uh, raises the question, why aren't we seeing other players in the same boat? Not that I'm complaining. On the contrary, I'm pleased that this situation is so unusual but are players doing better academically these days due to the legacy of Coach John Baxter? Is it due to the fact that they have a small number of players that were easy to monitor and track? Is it due to increased personnel in the compliance department? Other factors? Thanks, Stephen Poway.
1: Oh, Steve, I think without a doubt, I mean, they're doing better academically. It, uh, we've heard it from Cody uh, uh, more than anybody. Who talks about, he says, you know, how confident he is about this year because he will say we had the highest GPA of any football team at USC ever last semester. So, uh, you know, right away, you know, when you're, you know, Heisman candidate, fifth year quarterback is talking academics first, uh, that's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good sign. We've got an awful lot of guys that are either graduated or within one class of graduating, uh, you know, that's another, you know, really good sign. Uh, they just, uh, you know, everywhere you look, you're looking at a guy who, uh, you know, basically uh, a lot of just guys that have their degrees. So there's a seriousness about it. I mean, we don't you don't have any, like, necessarily geniuses, you know, where you're you know, some kid that's going to, you know, win the Nobel Prize in chemistry maybe. But, you know, a kid like Connor Spears, you know, coming from the Ivy League uh, tight end, uh, really smart kid, you know, he's doing film sessions for the tight ends. He's the one, you know, that they're all, you know, going to, you know, so well, how do we run this or how do we run that? Um, there's real serious, uh, you know, smart kids and, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's clearly the case. So yeah, you're right. Jalen has kind of, you know, been, been the exception right now. And I think it's, you know, when you're, you, um, you know, we're an academic, you know, had some issues uh earlier uh i guess was the fall semester it's never going to be easy to get way above you know your head way above water i mean you you're probably always going to be because uh the farther you go along in, in you know in school the more the demands are in terms of uh the ncaa rules about where your academic where your gpa has to be and what the uh, upper level courses you have to take and all that so it's probably going to be a you know a, a struggle uh, all the way through for Jalen, but uh, but this team has uh, academically performed well. I thought last year with the morning practices, the first time they went to morning practices with Lane, that really threw guys off, and and especially the freshmen, and there were real adjustment issues last year. It didn't seem to be any problem at all, and and I'm not even sure anybody is exactly sure uh, what all the factors are there, but but it's it's clearly the case.
0: Um, Dan we had a couple questions on uh kind of how guys are looking matt from woodland uh, said what players have been have made the most progress over the summer and spring any guys showed up obviously unprepared and kind of the same lines uh, same line Steve wrote in any guys that exceeded your expectations or disappointed you so any, any kind of guys one way or the other
1: i think max brown is just just the sense we always had the sense that he'd be ready to step in, but I think I was talking to you the other day and I said, you yeah, know, watching it was a day when Max really had got got a lot of chance to make a lot of throws and do a lot of things. And I said, yeah, he'd probably start on eleven out of twelve teams in the SEC, and he wouldn't start to the other one only because they needed a quarterback to run the ball. But uh, uh, he's really uh, he's really been impressive. Uh, I think Stephen Mitchell at 100%, you know, full health, has been uh, watching Juju, you know, Smith-Schuster and uh, Kevon Seymour go at it the other day. You just realize, on a lot of one-on-one stuff, you realize how powerful Juju is. And he's a different kind of a wide receiver that, you know, he works so hard and he's so young and working so hard and such a leader. Uh, but <laughs> it comes right down to it. Man, he's a strong, tough dude and uh he really wants to catch the football so uh um uh, not they you know he's uh, done a really nice really nice job and then uh, you know after that you don't want to you don't want to anybody but i think this is a team that's got had some serious purpose i think um uh, they they have a sense that you know for whatever reason they didn't get it done last year and they know why you know previous years they didn't get it done but this year, they're just not going to let anything, uh, you know, keep them from getting it done. So I think, you know, from when you look at the weight gains by the guys who need to gain weight, when you look at the weight losses by the guys who need to lose weight, uh, most of that seems to have happened. And, and um, you know, the guys that need a good weight have it. The guys that, you know, needed to drop some have, have mostly done that. And uh, um, so – it's, it's really hard to just, other than that few that are just, you know, out in their own, own separate place. Uh, it's hard to say, you know, any one guy just jumps right out at you.
0: All right, uh, let's go to Garrett in Seattle. This is a little longer one, but he said since you were talking about Max Brown, I thought we'd go into it. Uh, Dan, is it a foregone conclusion that Max Brown will be the next quarterback after Cody Kessler? What are Sam Darnold's chances of winning the spot? He is the only QB currently on the team who has legitimate running capabilities. I know Max has been doing well in practice and is next in line, but we have seen many times with Cody Kessler where if the play does not go perfectly as planned, whether it's just because of a blitz, wide receivers not open, protection breaking down, et cetera, the play is basically dead and he'll just throw it away or get sacked, which of which a lot of times proves to be a drive killer. Realistically, could we expect anything different with Max or Ricky Town at quarterback? Darnold, on the other hand, has the ability to turn those kinds of plays into positive gains, with his running ability and keep drives alive more consistently, which is what USC has been lacking in recent years against tougher teams. He would also open up the passing game and keep defenses honest in the run game simply because of his ability to run. It's exactly what USC needs at quarterback, a true passer who can and will run when needed. It bothers me to think that he could have to wait two to three years. uh, We could have to wait two to three years before seeing Darnold running this offense, because only then will we see, uh, all that this offense can be great job on the podcast. appreciate your work and fight on Garrett in Seattle.
1: okay <laughs> Garrett uh i mean I think one of the problems with the you know, the assumption i i think you know Sam has done a done a nice job and he definitely can take off and he is a competitor he looks uh like a guy who could easily be uh you know uh a tight end and a quarterback's body by the time he grows up and uh you know, or a uh, you know a the starter type guy who just can you know stand in there and take almost anything, but uh, but I do think Cody and uh, Max will probably take off a little bit more this year. I think you'll be surprised that that uh, they're not gonna. You know, I think last year was kind of a learning experience for all of them in terms of what exactly everybody wanted or expected. But uh, but I think uh, I think they'll take off. But I think you, you may be, you know, in terms of wanting to see somebody who can run the ball, maybe uh, not taking it. That would be like, for example, saying, man, if if Tim Tebow only played for the Broncos, that Peyton Manning could just take a seat on the bench or uh, maybe he could go back and you know, play for the Patriots and they could put Tom Brady on the bench or whatever. I'm not sure that would be the way you want to go. I mean, I think, you know, uh, Max will be good enough to have everybody saying, Me and it's so great we got him for two years is my thinking how that's probably going to play out. So, no, I don't think, uh, I don't think there's any question, uh, who the quarterback next year is going to be. Uh, that's going to be Max Brown. And, uh, I think everybody will be, uh, thrilled to death that, that he's the quarterback.
0: Yeah. And, and Steve Sarkeesian did say that, you know, Ricky Towns looked a lot better from the spring. Uh, I thought Sam Darnold looked really good too, but Max Brown—it it seems like he's on another level. I, I don't see anyone beating him out. I think you know, if, you know, if, if Sam Darnold comes in and is playing way better than Max Brown, I'm sure Steve Sarkeesian would would put him in there. But as of now, Max Brown looks like he could start all over the place. So I mean, it's good. It, it's good to have a guy like that on your team.
1: And and Ricky actually will take off and run the ball. Uh, has in the summer, so they've obviously talked to him about it. And, uh, and so I think, I I think that hesitation last year probably won't be there this year across the board that you will see guys take off and and, and run it. So, uh, that might not be as much of a need as, uh, as you think it would based on last year when you see this year
0: yeah that was garrett in seattle it might it sounded like garrett in san clemente but well you know that's good that's great we love that you know people follow kids and they they want to see a certain type of player in there so uh cool stuff let's go we got a voicemail question dan again here we go
1: hello this is Random in dallas i was hoping to get a question answered by dan um it deals with scholarships uh, as USC is now offering a four-year ride, as opposed to the renewables, uh, when a walk-on player earns their scholarship, do they have the uh, the full ride, or is it still a renewable one? Uh, thank you. Fight on, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Yeah, they renew the uh, uh, the walk-ons get a renewable one. So, uh, for example, uh, the walk walk-ons from last year, Ryan Dillard, I guess George Katrib, who got scholarships, who returned this year. Uh, those scholarships now, uh, those went to um, uh, the special teams guys who've done such a great job, Zach uh, Smith and uh, Connor Sullivan. And so, uh, yeah, those are uh, those do not become the four-year. Those are not the four-year grants. Those are you know year by year renewable how that's going to play out this year when we see how many guys are here and how many can be renewed. I, I, I would certainly, I would think they're going to announce the, you know, the four blue shirt guys. And then uh I do think they'll have scholarships left over. Uh There are a lot of ways to go with that. I mean, one of the ways you can't go, unfortunately, for say a Connor Spears, you have to be in the program for two full years as they walk on before you can get a scholarship. So He's in his uh, fourth semester now, but uh, he will not be eligible for a scholarship until January. Um, and, you know, there's somebody that is just as as worthy of a scholarship as almost anybody on the team. But uh, but yeah, the 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 walk on guys get the uh, renewable for a year.
0: All right. Uh, thanks for that voicemail. Let's see. Um, we'll go to. It's A.G. Dub from Sonoma County. Uh, he says, from the USC media guide, we don't remember something worded this way a year ago. And he puts in quotes, we're not going to stray very far away from our offensive approach of a year ago, Steve Sarkeesian said, who will continue to call the plays in USC's up-tempo, no-huddle offense with help from offensive coordinator Clay Helton. We just find this interesting. It seems to indicate that Sarkisian is going to have the same offense as last year. If so, then USC is going to play not to lose instead of playing to win. Is this correct? That's A.G. Dub from Sonoma County.
1: Well, yeah, I, I won't uh, reveal uh, A.G. Dubb's uh, uh, name here, but uh, uh, a very good, uh, close observer of the program. Uh, and I think it's not so much you know most coaches aren't going to say oh we're going to change right you know our offense I think it's attitude that has to change and uh, so uh, you know you may decide you're going to do this or you're going to do that uh, I think it was the emphasis on what you chose to do when you chose to do it what kind of you know risk you were going to, you were willing to take and, and all of that kind of thing I think they were basically they ran you know you can run the same offense two straight years but if you were very risk averse last year and say this year you're not risk averse and to be honest let's say this year your offensive line can really uh, get you yards when they know you're going to run and you know you're going to run and you're still able to run it last year when that happened they often weren't able to run it I think the key there is the ability and a sergeant sarc- Wants to be a run first coach, but they have to be able to run it first. And, um uh, that's gotta be the key, that they, they get themselves to a place where they can run it first. And, uh, they can do that, they can run that offense and, and have a great deal of fun with it. So, uh, so I think it's the ability, you know, the execution, the ability to actually run the offense, not so much the concept, uh, of the offense. Uh, it's the, uh, the attitude of, of when you can do it and uh how you're not going to, I mean, I think that last year, for example, they would come out in the second half and think, gosh, we don't have many players, and sure, we got the lead, and yeah, it went well the first half, but maybe we need to just run the ball here so that we can take time off the clock, and maybe the clock will run out before they catch up to us, and we know how that worked. That, you <laughs> know, there were a couple of <laughs> real, you know, clinkers in there. And I think this year you can't come out and say, "Gee, I hope." You know, you know, my thinking is, well, what if you? You know, we can't throw the ball three times and not run any clock off, and you know, give give up the ball. My thought is always, uh, well, hell, then complete your passes and miss the ball down the field and score again, and then they've got a bigger hill to climb if they're going to try to get it back in the game hit you know, the team you're playing. So. I think there'll be more. If that thinking takes over, uh, the offense becomes kind of a side issue. You, you, it, it's just what you do. Uh, but a lot of it is when you do it and how you know how you decide to do it, I think is more important.
0: All right. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Robin Ukaika. Uh, he says, it's an offensive question too, with the added depth on the offensive line, do you think Steve Sarkeesian with the Tempo offense will rotate linemen especially running the football to gas the defense even more. Uh, seems like that would be a good strategy, especially since we can rotate a couple of backs in there as well. That would open the playbook more for Cody and the receivers in the deep passing game, or at least play-action pass. And he said, factoid, in the last five years, USC has won more games than UCLA, uh, and only one fewer than Notre Dame, and two our two main rivals. Uh, I used... The, the this last five-year time frame because that's the true length of the sanctions and it was greater than the three years assessed and how it affected the team and players allowed to transfer without sitting so on and so on not bad since many of those athletes instead of playing for sc ended up playing against usc fight on great job on the podcast robin Ukaika
1: yeah rob you're exactly right they the way usc has uh you know survived the sanctions uh managed to, to get through the sanctions considering all of the, the coaching turmoil and the whole issues of, you know, everybody knows what happened and what it meant, you know, why it happened and all that kind of stuff, uh, that they were able to, to survive and to be in the position they're in now is, is truly remarkable, and it says something about the nature of the USC program. I think you could fairly say no one else could have survived those sanctions that well, not Alabama. Not, you know, Texas, Oklahoma, not, you know, Notre Dame, UCLA, nobody. Uh, it's truly amazing, uh, you know, what they've been able to do, where they are. It's a tribute to the entire USC program historically and everything else. Uh, and the school, give them, you know, credit for just being, you know, the school, you know, that USC is. Uh, in terms of the rotations, I think we're already seeing that. I think that's a, that's something Coach Conley is obviously likes to do. I mean, he's you know, he's had a Chris Brown in there. He's had a Chuma Adoga in there. And uh, uh, I think you're going to see guys sliding in and sliding out. I think the fact that Toa Lomondon can play a number of different positions, uh, the fact that Chad Wheeler looks like he's really ahead of schedule, you know, coming back, I think there are going to be, uh, you know, multiple choices that they're going to have, and um, it would be crazy not to take advantage of them. So I think they're getting them ready, uh, you know, for those kinds of, of rotations already. And I, I agree. Uh, I think, you know, it would be nice to guess the other team instead of, you know, worried about that you're going to be gassed. And I think one of you know the most effective ways to do that is the run the ball and, you know, knock people off the line of scrimmage. So, uh, so I think we're seeing uh, the beginnings of, of that.
0: All right. Uh, why don't we go to Marcel in Diamond Bar. He said, I noticed USC was not featured on the Pac-12 Network training camp. Um, Pac-12 Network's training camp. I guess they were showing training camp shows. I don't get the network, so I can't tell. Uh, but <laughs> what was the reason behind that? If you've already answered this question, I apologize. Thanks and fight on from Marcel.
1: Marcel, I think there's a they're the last team. Uh, they're going to be here. I believe this is from off the top of my head. The 26th, but I think they're uh, 12th and last of the uh, Pac-12 uh, from the training camp, uh, you know, series this year. Uh, and I will say this: We're going to miss Rick Neuheisel. He was so good at what he did, and we we had a chance to get together with him beforehand. He really knew what he was doing, and he was able to say it. In such a, you know, an interesting way, uh, but, uh, but USC will be on the Pac-12. I believe it's, uh, uh, August 26th is the day that they come to USC. And I do believe that's the 12th out of 12. So they're getting here. It's just taking them a while.
0: You know, Dan, one of the things I was thinking about this morning for some reason, you know, I don't, like, I don't get the Pac-12 network, um, but, I, I know the 30 minute game recaps people seem to like. It's not a recap. It's like really you can show like the whole game in about 30 minutes. I wonder if those are available online. Cause so I think it'd be something fun for fans to do. Cause sometimes you forget stuff that happened. You remember the end of the Arizona State game, but you might not remember most of the second half of Colorado or something. And you could go back and watch. Uh, you know, the 30-minute version of those games. If, if they made those available online, that would be very cool. I don't know if they do. I'll have to check on
1: I know. That. I, that was a question. I mean, unfortunately, uh, I just assumed that when they had the president of the Pac-12 Network, Lydia Murphy-Stevens, speaking last week, that she'd be available for questions. Well, I mean, she barely got finished reading her <laughs> speech, and she was out of there. I mean, she was like, uh, you, you know, it's like was that Hillary Clinton? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, where did she go? She's gone. Because that was the exact question. I I really think that they they need to have a way that you can access that kind of com- content. Because uh, those games, I mean, and, and there are some days you turn it on and there's three straight UFC games, and you go uh, from last year and you think, wow, okay, I didn't remember that. Oh yeah, that's. And, but they actually do them uh, in in sixty minutes.
2: Oh, but, sorry, but okay. They, they,
1: they do the total game basically every play in 60 minutes, and it's the best feature on the Pac-12 now that Rick Neuheisel wasn't there. Uh, <laughs> it's, the, it's the best single feature. And, uh, uh, yeah, fans could – I think that would really enhance, the, you know, their ability. And to me, if I were the Pac-12, i also try to – I think uh, like USC and a number of schools have digitized old game film and, uh, that would seem to be a really attractive, uh, you know, offer if the Pac-12 could pull that off. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to, uh, the Kirk Reynolds of the Pac-12 network about that. That's, uh, that's something we ought to follow up on and see are they gonna be able to do that and when maybe. And, um, and people would love that if you could just call up, uh, uh you know, a particular game and, and watch it. You'd, uh, you know, or like last week if people could call up, uh, Frank Gifford games. And, yeah. and just see whatever you know. What can I see you know that's available you know on Frank Gifford? I, I do think uh, networks uh, have to start doing more of that because people really want to kind of do their own programming now. So, uh, uh, but that's uh, that's where I'd like to see them go. So that we need to follow up on that question.
0: Yeah, and I remember that presentation she gave. It kind of seemed like a high school kid talking in front of people for the first time, like reading off a of cue cards. It was really. I was like, wow, she's nervous up there talking. So no, I felt I mean, kind of I bad. Mean, I
1: know she did not want to hear the word Direct TV one time yeah. uh, thrown her way, or or the question that somebody would say, "Well, I was watching the SEC network, and they had 47 football games on this week, and I was watching the Big Ten network. They had you know classic Ohio State, Penn State, da da da, and then I turned on the Pac-12, and it was Washington State, uh, Oregon State volleyball." Yeah. Uh, What's going on here? Uh, And the Pac-12 is very, you know, diverse programming and very, you know, across the board, equal and all that. And and there are people who say, well, then maybe that's why you only have 12 million subscribers uh, as opposed to, you know, 60 and 70 million. Uh, You know, they've done a lot of things well, but there are, you know, there are questions right now as to what, you know, the decisions that they've made in terms of distribution, in terms of totally owning the Pac-12 network, as opposed, as opposed to the Big Ten with a, you know, 50-50 share with Fox or the SEC with a 50-50 share with ESPN. Uh, I think the, uh, Pac-12 is starting to think that maybe they need to start looking for a partner. Uh, but that's not been the direction that they've talked about. And, uh, we'll see how this goes. They, I think at least now they know they don't have all the answers. At, at first they were acting as if they don't, they had all the answers, but the fact that the revenue for school, each school with a PAC-12 gets about a million dollars a year and that hasn't gone up. Whereas in the, uh, Big Ten they're up to five million plus and the SEC in year one was ten million per school. So that's a, that kind of revenue gap is something you know, the Pac-12 presidents have to be taking a look at and saying, Hey, what's going on here?
0: Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, <laughs> it's very, it's very, it's funny. If you made two Pac-12 networks, if you made, we're going to do a Pac-12 network that has only football and then one that has all the Olympic sports and everything, uh, more people would pick up the, <laughs> just the football one. And I know it's like you want to, you want to show the, you know, broad base and show everything, but I think the SEC, did it right when they came out and they said every single team is going to have a football game on the SEC network within the first, I think it was the first month or something like that. Like they focused on football, knowing that any of those 14 teams, all of them were going to have a game early on. So fans were going to miss a game. Every single fan base was going to miss a game if whoever their carrier was didn't carry the SEC network. And that ensured that every single fan base would be calling and complaining and making sure that they got those deals done. They kind of pushed it through. And you can see other stuff on the SEC network too, but they led with football. And I feel like the Pac 12, they didn't want to lead with football. It's like, yeah, football's there, but we're going to show you lacrosse too. And all, and it's like, yeah, that's nice. And, but for the most, for the most part, you want to sell it. You got to sell the football side.
1: Well, and they didn't want to lead with USC either. And I think they didn't do their homework when they didn't realize that the largest subscriber group in the nation to DirecTV, 1.3, 1.4 million people were in Southern California. So the inability to get a deal with DirecTV was kind of a slap in the face at Southern California football fans. And an awful lot of people that get DirecTV, they get it for sports, they get it for football, but unfortunately they get it for pro football. And you don't have that same sense of, uh, you know, in Alabama, you couldn't even imagine being a cable TV provider that didn't carry the SEC network. I mean, it's not even, you can't even conceive of that happening. It's just not possible. And it's, you know, it's happened in you know, in Southern California, and you can almost get away with it. The only upside is with USC's uh, first two games this year, the Inter- on the pac 12 network, it may really help the uh, walk-up sales for those two games when people realize, wait a minute, I can't watch them. I can't watch them at home. Oh, gosh, maybe i better go to the Coliseum. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) There is an upside.
0: Yeah. Um, All right, we got a couple more. We'll get to JD from D.C. He says, Dan, in a year where we have so many freshmen capable of contributing, and he put in parentheses, it's not all unlikely we'll have six freshmen in the two deep by the Arkansas State game. It's timely to recall the many past freshmen who made huge contributions to USC success. Who would your all-time top freshman at USC be? Oh, wow. This is going to be tough. With apologies, of course, to those before 72, 73, who couldn't play as freshmen, and the many greats who didn't start as freshmen. I'd certainly have Cody. Uh, I think he's probably talking about Sean Cody. Uh, Baselli, Munoz, Lott, Grudegood, Palmer, uh, Mike Williams, and more recently, Matt Barkley, Adoree, Jackson, Leonard Williams, maybe Brian Cushing, Chris O'Dowd. You can't overlook Toa Lobendon. He was uh, irreplaceable last year. Who have I overlooked, and who would you pick as the most impact freshman ever at USC? He says, I'd say it's between uh, Mike Williams, Matt Barkley, and Sean Cody, J.D. and D.C. Uh,
1: let's see. Uh my my take take would be Mac, mike williams just because the first scrimmage i ever covered at usc uh and he just tore it up as a freshman yeah. and i remember arguing with the beat people who had gone through all those bad years with usc and you know uncertain coaching and all that and i i remember saying Holy, you know gosh this guy is uh aren't, there isn't another wide receiver in the country quite like this guy. I mean, he's just a dominant physical, you know, he's got to turn things around. And they looked at me like, and eh, they won't throw it to him, or eh, they won't be able to block, the, you know, for Carson. He'll get killed, or da-da-da-da-da-da. No, 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 no. So – I still remember that that discussion where literally every single person covering the UFC beat thought I was an idiot for <laughs> saying that Mike Williams is going to turn things around here, and he's going to be – and I think he had overall program impact. I think he maybe he had more than anybody just because of what came immediately next and how he set the tone – for Pete and for using freshmen and the impact that, you know, that talent could have right away. Uh, I think you got, you know, pretty much everybody there. I think, was it Marcus Martin maybe played as a freshman, 17-year-old freshman that we didn't know that much about. Yeah, And he was a starting, and now, you know, playing for the 49ers. Uh, I think he might have been somebody that also, you know, could be on that list. But, uh, yeah, it's a great list. But uh, Mike Williams is the guy for me. I I just think he – he was the program turner around as a freshman. Uh, I just think he had the most impact.
0: I'd have to go back and look. I'm sure they we're forgetting some people, but I would agree on Williams. And I think it was it's funny, Dan. I think the first day he was there, he was wearing, like, number 19 or something. And he was so big, he just stood out. You're like, who the heck is that guy? And then he eventually switched to, to number one. But also, I think, helped open up the you know, recruiting in Florida, too. So there was a lot of aspects yep. to his game.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a – uh, you know, look at, you know, what would last year have been like without Buck Allen, Leonard Williams, Nelson Aguilar? I mean, just try to, you know, imagine. So, yeah, that uh, Buck or uh, Mike Williams started that out. So, so I think overall impact he had the most.
0: All right. And we got one more. Uh, Mike from Irvine. He says, thanks for the great podcast. I'm a longtime listener and first time questioner. My view on recruiting is that quality of the recruiting class is determined largely by the top four or five or so recruits. Only about 20 to 25 players are starters, which is about five or six from each recruiting class if your starters are split among the past four recruiting classes. The 10th, 15th, and 20th best recruits provide bodies for the scout team in depth, which is really important for the team as a whole, but they rarely make consistent contributions in games during their careers. For example, from the 2014 class, I would project uh, the impact players to be a Dory Jackson, Juju Smith, maybe Br- Bryce Dixon, Max Brown, Toa Lobodon. Other recruits like a Ajani Harris and Jonathan Lockett are terrific and will contribute with some playing time and in practice, but it's unlikely they will be high-impact players because only so many can start. They would be high-impact at another school with lower-quality top six in their class. So he yeah, had two questions based on that. Assuming the top four or five recruits are real different makers in the recruiting class, who do you think are those difference makers in the 2015 recruiting class, and why? And what is your take on the idea that quality of recruiting class is made up largely of its top four or five players? Thanks, Mike from Irvine. So it's a little longer one, but hopefully you get the gist of it.
1: Yeah, my, I, I
2: mean,
1: I think you can you know make that case, uh, but if I look back at say the Pete just the Pete era. I think the thing that made those teams special not just the stars and the playmakers, but all the way through um, the competitors and guys that, you know, probably weren't going to go on to the NFL. But they really made, you know, big plays and key. So I, I think it's a blending of the two. And I, I, I don't you know, you make the case. If you really recruit at that high, high, high level and you get five or six of those really big impact guys every year, uh, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna run out of places for you know the next uh, you know ten guys in terms of being high impact players. So so I think the mathematics work out you know that way. As far as this you know this year's team, for example, <clears throat> you look at the three running backs. I don't know how we separate them out right now. They they do different things. They're they're yeah, all have different skill sets, but uh, but I'm not sure we can you know say. This is how that's going to play out. Um, I look at a you know, say a wide receiver like Deontay Burnett. I don't. I mean, got a pretty high ceiling. Um, you know, he, he physically uh, you know got a long way to go in terms of where he's going to be, and you know, in another few years. But uh, but I'm I'm really I've been real high on him. Then we look at those defensive linemen, and you just you look at them and you just say, okay, there's a def- an NFL defensive line. Right there. I mean, yeah. you just look at these guys. They don't look like anything I've ever seen in the 12, 13, whatever years covering USC. There's nothing else ever you've had that looked like those guys. Where they all end up, which ones of them, you know, have that extra special something or do all of them or I don't know. But I know just looking at them, you think, wow. Uh, so I think it might be a little premature. Then you look at the linebackers. You know, what's not to like about all four of them have different, you know, again, different skill sets. Uh, and how that how that plays out, I mean, you could make a case for any one of the four, I think, or any two of the four, or any three of the four, or any four. You know, will it be uh, another class like the uh, Ray Maluga, you know, Brian Cushing, you know, Clay Matthews, you know, that that class? Uh, I guess it could be. You look at the secondary, and you look at you know Biggie Marshall and and Marvel Cal and uh, and Kelly Ross and you know those guys Isaiah Langley. I think this year's class is probably one of the harder ones uh, that you ever have to say, okay, it's going to be these six guys. I, I, my tendency is, and I know it's you know we're talking about the peristyle we're talking about you know the kind of you know discussions people like to have i mean my my tendency is to try to let it play out and let them determine who that guy is rather than you know me or us as much fun as that is to try to you know predict where that's going to go you kind of i kind of want to let them uh pr- you know let them decide that and uh, i just like to be there and watch and see what happens
0: you know i think that his theory is is can be true a lot of the times but with this recruiting class coupled with the fact that USC is coming off sanctions and didn't have that many scholarship players I mean you look at if we're at practice you know this week and we saw the entire line I mean the entire like linebacker crew would come out all four of them were the true freshmen in one line and then the secondary they would all come out all four of them were true freshmen they got so many seniors on the defensive line I mean it how could you not have Two or three of these guys start not starting next year on the defensive line. So, I mean, next year, uh, you know, in 2016, could USC have six or seven of the true freshmen from the class of 2015 starting on defense next year or more? I, I think that's a distinct possibility. So just on the defensive side of the ball, you could have more than the, the five or six. Just be, I think because of the nature of this, how good this recruiting class was. The defensive class was such balance where you really have, like, you recruited a starting defense in the Pac-12 all in one class, which is crazy. It doesn't normally happen. And coming off sanctions, you're just going to need bodies to come in there and start playing.
1: Well, and that was one of the real advantages USC had going in. And and USC has some naturally built-in advantages. They still have the most players in the NFL despite the sanctions. USC's number one. They've got the most first-round draft picks, the most overall number one draft pick, and the most NFL Hall of Famers. Well, uh, I guess Notre Dame tied them this year. They're each, each have 12. Uh, but uh, USC has been able to recruit to that. And then when you say, and because of our numbers, there's a pathway for you to play pretty much right away. I think that skews, as Ryan said, that skews the numbers for this coming year. I mean, it's a uh, yeah, this is not a uh, a normal year just because of what they were able to do in selling the program for all the historic reasons and all the you know USC reasons, and as well as there's going to be a place for you and very soon, and especially on defense.
0: All right. Well, it was a big podcast. I'm sorry, again, we didn't do our Tuesday one. We had, uh, I don't know if I mentioned at the top, we had some technical issues. We were trying to do a podcast from the practice field, so we moved it to Wednesday. And, uh, Dan, thanks for thank very much for coming on. And I know we had a lot, a lot of questions, but we got to all of them. So thanks for everyone sending them in, and thank you, Dan, for answering them.
1: Well, I'm not sure we got all the answers, but we uh, there are, I think this is the time of year where the questions should outnumber the answers. And, uh, and, uh, and that's the fun part about it. You know, it wouldn't be as much fun if if we had all the answers. Uh, those are to be determined as we go.
0: I agree with you 100%. All right. Well, thanks Dan and everyone else. You have been listening to the Peristyle podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time. And here's a quick message from Michael Moline, real estate.
2: estate transaction. Michael Moline Real Estate has industry expertise to help you with both your real property and your personal property as you get ready to transition. Michael Moline Real Estate specializes in properties located on the west side of Los Angeles and the southern San Fernando Valley communities. Allow Michael Moline Real Estate to give you a free comparative market analysis and home valuation so you know how much your home is worth today. Contact Michael Moline at michaelmolinerealestate.com. That's Michael M-O-L-I-N-E Estate.com